first hardware podcast or, or first hardware founder of season three. Nice. So Dylan, you're the founder of Evergreen. What is Evergreen? So Evergreen creates uh, devices that help people make money from their hardware. Um, we started with a crypto mining device that uses hard drives. Um, and so people just plug it in and they just start making money. And generally, you know, when you talk about hardware, especially like early stage hardware startups, you really don't think about making money or being profitable in the first year. You usually don't hear about it either, but you have some very interesting numbers that you generally don't see um, kind of like in the hardware space. You did something like a million dollars in like your first year or two. So what was the story of, of kind of how you got started? Yeah. So, I mean, I've been doing hardware for a long time and most of the stories with hardware is you just get stuck on, you know, development. And even once you have a prototype, it can then take a couple hundred K to get it into production. So after doing this for years and, and working at companies too, and just seeing like how much money they had to invest before even getting out into the, to the market, I, I definitely kind of had a thesis, which was like, just like software, I need to get into the market very quickly. I need to ship product very quickly. And the way that I did that was using off-the-shelf components and 3D printing. Um, so sp specifically in this business, from the time that I kind of came up with this idea and validated it, and, and before I even uh, you know, built it, I validated I could distribute it. I, I emailed some folks and said, hey, if I made this, would you put it on your channel, right? And once I got the go-ahead, I, I made the prototype in like two weeks, just barely had it working, like really MVP. They put it on their site, and that's how we got the first pre-orders. Right? What, what was the functionality of the first prototype? So again, it's you know, it's it's really nice kind of in crypto mining that it just has to make money, right? You don't have to build that much features. You just have to be able to monitor it, right? So the first device was a Raspberry Pi and a hard drive. Plug it into the wall. It just has some LEDs on it. And at the time, it didn't even have a mobile app. You would just go to like a little web page and it would say like, you're earning money. Um, and in crypto, you know you're earning money because the money comes into your wallet. If it doesn't right. come into your wallet, you know you've you know probably got the wrong thing or it's not working. Interesting. And so what was the process of reaching out to these people? Was it like YouTube channels or, or, or like websites? Yeah, well, so, you know, I, I, from a young age, was very much trying to build products and startups. And okay. I knew kind of in the back of my head that a lot of good projects start as side projects or hobbies, right? And so at the time, I, I kind of shut my brain off. I actually swore to myself, I'm not doing another startup but I wanted to make some money. And so I got into crypto mining just as a way for me to make money. So how did I get into it? Well, I, I went through like the user journey, the customer journey. I you know, went on YouTube, learned about it, bought my parts. I was in you know, five different discords, et cetera. So it was very easy for me after doing that for you know, two months, I knew who the players were that influenced this market because they were the ones who, you know, everybody talked about, hey, I, I learned this from this guy, I learned this from that guy. So then for me to turn around and reach out to those guys and say, hey, I'm a part of your community. You taught me how to do these things. Is this something that you would be interested in, right? That was the easiest way to do it versus like what I had done in the past was like, hey, like try the thing I've been trying to invent for the last year, right? Yeah, it's it's interesting. You know, a lot of people try to start startups for the sake of starting startups and they usually run out of money because they don't have some unique insight or they're trying to like steal someone else's idea or whatever but you kind of had the community aspect down. You clearly weren't like an outsider. You probably knew how to speak the language properly. And so then that got you your first, guess, I guess, placements on these channels. Yeah, so he like posted the video, um, you know, and he was honest with the community. Hey, this is a new, you know, company. The first thing was, hey, everybody go join the Discord. And I got whatever, a couple hundred people in the Discord. And from there it was, 
hey guys, I have you know a limited batch of 50. I'm gonna you know sign up here and I will select you to get the the prototype. Gotcha. And how much were you selling the first prototype for? We had two versions, seven ninety nine and like fourteen ninety nine. Okay, so eight hundred dollars, fifteen hundred dollars. And when you were selling it to these people, what was the promise? Just that they would be able to plug it into their wall and make money? Yeah. So so this specific market, like a lot of these guys, like just want to try different things. Gotcha. Um, and for me, and and the reason why I had gone into hard drives is because a lot of these folks are like running out of energy or like, I kind of say like as a joke, like the wife test, right? Like, is your wife going to be pissed at you for like putting this in the garage? <laughs> so like that, you know, as somebody who that happened to me, it wasn't my wife, it was my dad. He was like, why are you running this? Like, get this out of my house. Um, I knew I had something that passed the test, right? So the impetus for buying this product in particular versus buying any other product in the market was it's low power, you know, it's on a new network and, and people relatively had, uh, you know, faith that the, that the network was, um, you know, something they would want it to be a part of. And so then you were charging 800 to $1,500. How many did you sell in the first batch? 50. 50? Yeah. So you had like 50K of revenue coming in straight in the first few months. That was just in a couple of weeks. Just a couple of weeks? Just a couple of weeks, yeah. Interesting. And what did you do after that? I had to build them, right? So oh, I, you sold it like off a landing page, basically. Off a prototype, one okay, single prototype. prototype. That took me two weeks to make. Gotcha. Right, because that was what, it, someone committed and said, hey, can you get me a prototype? I said, yes, it took me about two weeks, right? Cool. Which then, in the world of hardware is like, you know, light speed. I mean, people, t- people take longer to build prototypes of like their mobile apps. So yeah, that is impressive. Yeah. Um, and then what happens next? So you, you, you have this prototype, bunch of sales, yeah, so I had to build them, right? Um, and so at the time it was just me. Uh, I had the the fifty thousand, you know, that I sold it for, and I was trying to sell it at a competitive margin. So there really wasn't much on the table. But I, uh, you know, I grinded. I got all the parts. Um, the way that these devices work is they actually have to sit in like kind of a server for you know a day or two. And at the time, the software was very not good at all. I was using off the shelf. Yeah. How long ago was this? About two years ago. Okay. Okay. So this was right around the time I moved to Daily City. So in this hacker house that I was in called Edify, I like took over the living room with a couple of my PCs that just had hard drives connected to them like 24 seven. Um, and then in the, in the basement, I had my 3D printer and I had my, my, my sander and my little glue assembly, right? I'm super gluing them. So it took me like, you know, five months to put all these things together. And in that time, not only did I have to actually build them, but the software was like rapidly changing, um, right? I had to keep updating the software. And very lucky that I had experience building devices with, you know, OTA updates and the ability to actually still work with the devices once they've left the house. I warn all hardware founders, like do not ship products without the ability, especially early on, the ability to update them or even like shell into that, right? Even go on and actually be able to do stuff because I had to, you know, swap out the whole software stack mid-flight because, you know, the network conditions changed or there was an update or this or that as, as it, you know, kind of happens in software. Um, and if I didn't have the ability to update, all those devices would have been dead. And I kid you not, there are devices, these V1s in this old 3D printed box that are still running. Interesting. Um, and we, we shifted out the software so people reached out, hey, I'm not getting updates. I'm like, oh yeah, I can help you, you know, reflash your SD card and get on our new system. Interesting. And then how long, so that was about five months. And then you had like the second batch of like the V2 prototype. Yeah, the V2, um, that was, uh, you know, more than just designing a new device. It went from me to building out a team. So I found other folks in the space who believed in what I was doing, who had complementary skill sets. And, and I grinded myself. This was a time when actually I was learning and teaching myself software beyond what I had already did because I was very much a hardware guy. I started working with manufacturers, but I also started developing like the mobile application. 
Um, and so I was able to meet some folks who, you know, took my initial operating system, turned it into a much better operating system, really productionalized everything that I was doing. So that took like, you know, seven, eight months, um, got a little bit of funding to have like the developers on board. Uh, and then as we were running out of funding, uh, we were like, all right, well, now or never, we got to launch it. And we were still 3D printing at the time. Um, and we barely set up like a little assembly line in the garage. Um, and, and about, you know, October uh, of, of, you know, last year, so whatever, a little over a year ago, um, that's when I started to do the same strategy, but I was a lot more calculated. So I didn't just kind of give the device to any YouTuber who, who said they would want me to have it. I started very calculated with like a YouTuber with a thousand subscribers. And then I went to the YouTuber with 10,000 subscribers. started with the lower subscribers? Yeah. Why? This niche, they know each other, right? Everybody knows everybody in this niche. That makes sense. So to build that hype iteratively was a lot more powerful because what ended up happening is the bigger guys then were reaching out to me, right? Because they wanted to be a part of this hype. And I created the FOMO for the distribution channel, not just, hey, begging, hey, please yeah. you know, do my thing. And then you can charge better rates on like, you know, they, you don't you don't get like, I guess, rugged by getting overcharged by some of these bigger YouTubers. They actually wanted to kind of have your product. Correct, yeah. How did that work from a conversion perspective? So in terms of conversion perspective, in terms of like cost or. So you were, you were putting these, these kind of like products onto these YouTube channels yeah. and people, it worked the first time around. Mm -hmm. You got 50 K in revenue off of these guys. The second time around with a new prototype, how is it working out? Yeah. So the first, like, let's say we, we sent it out to three YouTubers, you know, the most that these YouTubers had were maybe 50,000 subscribers, but we were able to start getting our numbers back up to what, what I had done before, 40,000, 50,000 a month, you know, so October was like, you know, 50,000, uh, November was 70,000, December was 80,000, right? Kind of just growing iteratively. And then by January, after we got picked up by like the two biggest folks in the space, that's when things really just cranked up and we were able to do, you know, three, 400K in a month. Of three, 400K orders. in a month. Yeah, it was wild. Interesting. And all it was, was just iteratively moving to larger and larger YouTubers. Yes. And, uh, the price of the coin went up as well because we were getting more exposure on it. Oh, so you had a speculative asset along with it? Well, so we're operating not on a network that I built, but right. You're, you're mining a token right. on another network. Gotcha. So like when we started in October, November, December, the token was at $30. And mind you, this was two months after X FTX had collapsed. Interesting. Right. So this was like, for all intents and purposes, the market should have been totally washed out. Yeah. But I think it's actually in our favor because think about what happened. It was centralized exchanges where you own nothing. You have no control. Of course, you're going to start to want to put your, you know, your money into a real hard asset where you're the producer, you're the provider instead of on the other end of that chain where you have no control. But long story short, by January, and you can, you can see the price, it's called Chia XCH. It goes from 30 to 45. And at the time, I wasn't sure if it was because of our exposure. But over the last year, I've watched this happen to other coins where, you know, they're the hot mining coin that month and the price goes way up. And that creates a flywheel of sorts. Um, but it can also be pretty dangerous because you get way too many people coming in and then the price crashes and everybody's disappointed. And, you know, just because it got a lot of attention on YouTube doesn't actually warrant like any fundamental reason why it should go up. But that definitely played to our advantage because people started to feel the FOMO. 
How are you fulfilling all of these orders coming in? Because it sounds like you were in a living room with like a few guys like that were developers. Yeah. Um, so at the time we had like half a server rack, right? Because these hard drives need a, an associated server rack to actually work for the network. And that was like part of our critical advantage is like all of our customers were not going to buy their own server rack. So we did that as the service, right? That was like part of why we were um, really popular is because instead of having to go out and buy like all this equipment just to have your farm, we would just give you the farm. Um, so at the time we had like half a server rack, we had a couple tables in the garage. Uh, very quickly, I had to start buying a ton of parts, finding many different suppliers, running out suppliers of their supply, right? Like I would order the screws on Amazon, order as many as I could, and then they'd be out. I was still <laughs> using a lot of like secondhand or off the shelf parts. Um, and so, yeah, the scale up was very painful. It, it took, uh, I mean, we probably iterated on the, on the, you know, uh, production line in the garage like 20 times until we got it right. And it was even small stuff like the orientation of the table. Cause if you put the tables too close together, people start bumping into each other, they drop stuff, whatever. Um, but then the bigger task was taking that half server rack and turning it into like four full server racks. And if you've ever run a server rack, they get pretty hot. What goes into building a server rack? Yeah. So you build the frame, you got to know how to build servers. Um, you got to, you know, get, get the server, put, you know, we had GPUs, we had Ram, et cetera. So that was a little easier for us to source the server components. It was more designing the actual room, getting enough power into that room. And we're in California, we pay crazy energy yeah. rates. We had to run new power lines into the room. We had to put a 60,000 BTU air conditioner, <laughs> right? And there's barely any room to walk around. And then even once it was done, I had to build a bunch of software to monitor. There, there was 35 servers in this room. Um, and, and I got so tired of asking, you know, the people working in the server room, hey, what's the status of this? What's the status of that? And one day they were out for a week and I had to step in and do that job. Um, and by the way, you know, I did everything before I would have somebody else do it to find all the inefficiencies and just to do it. Um, and so I'm doing their job for a week and I'm like, man, this is, this is so inefficient. And so I, that was kind of another, you know, big uh, jump for me in my journey was, um, I actually had an application to build. So I had these software skills and then I was like, well, now I actually have like a reason to build it. So I just very rapidly built this tool that, you know, once that was done, I never had to ask that question again. Right. It was great. Interesting. And were things like when you're trying to fulfill it to that many people, yeah. were they going through slowdowns? Were they having like longer wait times before they could oh, get their order? Oh yeah. I think the longest order took six months, which is very much not, I'm not proud of that at all. Um, and I, I remember having kind of a conversation with my co-founder at the time, um, you know, what happens if we get half a million in orders? And I'm like, you know, we're, we're gonna be having to work very hard to fulfill that. And the other tough part is every week that goes by, you need more capacity, right? So, so even if we could ship, you know, 400K a month, well, in three months, we had to ship a million in a month just to make up for it. So that's what we did, right? By like month three or four, we we had to ship a million dollars of orders in a single month to make up for the you know four months of waiting after after getting those initial orders. And you never moved out to like your own warehouse. This was all out of a living room. It was too expensive at the time, and and everything was so thin. We didn't really raise money. It was it was it was fairly bootstrapped. You bootstrapped a hardware business. It, fairly, you know, not a hundred percent, but <laughs> well, so and, and there was other stuff happening. PayPal. You know, so this is where we didn't bootstrap was we had to get some some money in because PayPal held on to like a quarter million dollars for six months. And I'm every day I'm I'm calling PayPal and they're like, no, sorry, this, you know, you got to fulfill the orders. I'm like, how am I supposed to fulfill the orders when you're holding on to my money? 
So that was very painful. We got kicked off of Square. We got kicked off of Stripe. I mean, it was, right? We couldn't even sell. People are asking us to buy our stuff. We couldn't even sell it because the credit card companies didn't want to deal because, oh, you're crypto, right? A couple months after FTX collapsed. No way. And I had to explain to them, I'm just selling computers. You're going to stop. They didn't care because they go to my website and they see that it's crypto and that was it, even though I'm just selling computers. And how did you get around that? Uh, there, there's folks out there. We had to work, you know, with private kind of non-stripe, non-square, but it's fine because Shopify, all of them integrate into Shopify. Um, it's just a grind, right? I mean, you have to go through, there's all these challenges that come up and that's the biggest thing. When, when you go through one of these like crazy scale from selling, you know, $50,000 the year prior to like, you know, a couple million the next year, you go through these growing pains and, and that's what separates, you know, the people who make it from the people who don't is can you actually solve those challenges? Um, and and I, I think I got um, really blessed and lucky to be surrounded by people who just were there to grind it out and solve those challenges. So would you say you've solved all of them by now? Absolutely not. Um, but, you know, we haven't, it's, it's about what you don't have to change anymore, right? So right. I haven't had to change the internal processes. I haven't had to change our suppliers. I haven't had to change the design. That's when you know things are starting to smooth out. Because even up until, you know, if we had kind of the version two done, well, it wasn't done because I was 3D printing. So I had to move to injection mold and that's a new design effort. When we started selling, we were only trying to sell, you know, a small unit with a couple hard drives. Then people started ordering 20, 30, 40, 60. I didn't design this to run for 60 devices. So I had to build a whole nother thing. And that was months of iterative design and you're shipping something new to the field and there's always field failures, et cetera. You have to build QA. So, you know, is it, is it done? Are the challenges done? Well, we haven't had to change the designs in a while, but now we've moved to, you know, kind of more classic challenges of just cash flow and having to put down money for orders and, you know, still being a relatively bootstrap company. Uh, it's, it's been challenging to, to scale up beyond what we can just fulfill in a month. I mean, one of the things that makes hardware so hard is that you need money to build a product. It's not like software where you can just kind of like sit in cursor VS code and kind of have like something built. You literally have to order physical parts and you need, then I guess PayPal holds your money because it seems to be a recurring theme with everyone that has a physical like goods business. It's just, it's interesting to me that no one's, I guess, like figured it out in the sense that every other week or every other month, it feels like we hear about like some overhyped hardware company running out of money or their launch falls flat or they're dead on arrival. Do you even still think about that right now or are your marketing channels and your systems good enough to where now you're just worried about like scaling up? There was definitely um, a period of time where I was staring down, you know, the, the end of the company. Um, and it was when we went from, you know, 400K in orders per month to 50K. Um, and that is normal for a lot of businesses. They're seasonal, right? If you have a, 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 a you know, any, any hard goods business, they sell a lot during Christmas. They don't sell that much during the summer. Um, and mature businesses can can handle that because they have baked it into their margin that they need enough operating cash. We didn't know any of that, right? How could we? It was our first couple months of business. And we had to invest a lot into those servers and scaling up and, and just, you know, failing. And we had returns. And we So there was a period where we, we were very much in the negative. No one was looking to, you know, finance the business at the time. And I had to decide what I was gonna do. And, and really the only answer was, I need to sell my way out of this. I have a product and if I can't sell it, there's no point in getting investors. There's no point in continuing the business if I'm not able to actually continue to sell this product beyond the initial hype. And so that's what I did. Um, I, I, I 
dug my heels in and I figured out how to get us, you know, out of kind of this hole where, and figure out what is the minimum amount I need to sell per month to stay in business. Um, and that, that's what I did. I figured it out. How did you figure it out? Like, where were you selling? Yeah. Well, so, you know, the, the, the distribution channels that we work with, they very much rely on continuing to give their cost or their, their audience new and engaging content, right? So if they were to just keep shilling my product, their audience would not be very happy, right? So while it worked for several months to go through these specific channels, I had to then find new areas and new channels. I also at the time did have my own existing audience that I had not tapped at all because I felt very uncomfortable sending an email with a deal to people when they hadn't gotten their order. So at around the same time that we had those low sales months, we got caught up on orders. And the first thing I did was email marketing. And a lot of it just comes down to that sense of urgency, FOMO, right? And, and it, it's, it's a very um, tried and true marketing tactic of, hey, you know, you've got a limited window of time to get in on this next batch. Um, and just doing that over email was successful for me. So what was the high level email workflows that you used? It's different. I feel like it's different in hardware than it is on, on software. With hardware, like I have a friend who runs a, an email marketing agency for specifically like drop shipping kind of stores. He's raking in like 100K a month. Mm -hmm. And from what he tells me, like it's a very just like, it's a hard system to crack, but once you've cracked it, it works across pretty much everything. Was it the same way for hardware? Uh, yes. So urgency is key. And it was something that we actually baked in before any of this happened. Each of our devices we sell as a batch and each batch has like custom artwork, right? So not only are you getting the device, but you might be getting a different color and a different design. So for example, uh, one of the highlights in September or November with this in initial, you know, influencer that we had worked with, we did like a limited collaboration, right? Like Evergreen X Voss coin. We created an NFT. We had artwork that resembled themes from his channel, which were his dog. It was called the Tails Edition. It was the first time we dropped a new color. So really what you're doing is you're shifting the buying behavior from, oh, this is cool and I want it to, oh, I'm supporting this beyond just like the functionality of the device, right? So I'm not buying this because I think this specific device is going to make me more money than the other one. I'm buying this because I want to participate in this drop. Right. And that's something that depending on the product you have, you may not actually be able to do. If you're selling furniture, you know, you, you might not be able to do this limited drop. <laughs> um, but when you're selling a computer, you're, you're, you're fairly flexible to do whatever you do. And that's, so that's something we've repeated now a couple times where we created these cards with like custom artwork on it. And actually when you scan the card, it has a theme in the app. So it becomes this experience uh, so where you're connected to the creator or the brand that you buy from beyond just like, oh, I'm earning money off this device or, you know, I'm supporting this company. Um, and that's been one of the more successful strategies is, is doing these limited uh, kind of addition collaborations. That's dope. Do you plan on building out, you know, marketing funnels related to like Google ads, Facebook ads? We've done a little bit of Google ads. Um, yes, we are building it out. It just has not been the key area of focus. I think we're still kind of in the data collection where we're, we're trying to figure out, you know, what works, what doesn't. Um, Additionally, we have within our customer cohort, we have like several kind of personas. We've got the people who are just dipping their toe for $299 or $1,000. We have people all the way up who are ready to spend $100,000. Those are two very different segments. Yeah. And so just funneling different segments to go to different places of our site and trying to actually not commingle the two has actually been you know more of a challenge than I had anticipated. Interesting. Have you ever done like the 
I don't even know what to call it, but like if you look at Avi with with Tab, he's just been very loud online, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of buzz around him, especially once Humane kind of was like you know quote unquote dead on arrival. People were kind of looking at him, and then the Rabbit came out, and there was that whole thing he did with like the Rewind founders. But like it feels like a lot of people in SF have heard about Tab. He got his Fast Company article, and a lot of it was literally just him tweeting mm-hmm. and like sharing the whole like vision. This is going to change the world, like kind of that angle. Have you done any of that? Not particularly. So, you know, and, and I love Avi, he's great. And, you know, I love his vision and, you know, I chatted with him specifically about this. I'm like, how did you build up? And for him, he put the work in, right? He built up his own audience. He knows how to work with the media. And that's, you know, something that's specific to his skill set. I have focused in a, you know, in a very different area where like, I've been doing hardware for 10 years. I'm just like, you know, I didn't even think about that. I'm from Chicago. This idea of like hype was not really something that that came to me naturally. I was very much focused on kind of like business fundamentals outside of hype. And now having moved here, having, you know, spoken with people like Avi and especially like at Founders Inc, like it is, it is very much an asset that, that I've been trying to work on. Um, but, but there is also a lot of, you know, mind share, like for example, right? I work on a network that not many folks have heard of, um, especially in SF where there's a very specific mind share around Ethereum or Solana trying to break through on something that like, I didn't even build, I didn't even build this network. I chose it because of the technical fundamentals, but then trying to convince folks that, oh no, this is the thing you should be hyped about. That sometimes can be more of an uphill battle than it's worth. Um, whereas something broad like AI, like you don't have to convince anybody to get hyped about AI. That makes sense. That makes sense. Do you have any people that do marketing on your team? Like what does the team look like? So yeah, I, I do uh, a lot of the marketing um, and sales. We, have a customer service person who has actually done a lot of the inbound, right? So when we get a lot of inbound, we get a ton of tickets. A lot of them are customer service, hardware is hard, right? You have field failures that you gotta fix. We actually turn a lot of angry customers into new new sales. Really? It happened many times. I'll be on the phone and it's, it's the way that I talk to folks because I just sympathize with them and I'm like, trust me, I'm not happy either that this is happening, right? I, I don't wanna be here, you know, fixing. I always make this joke. I never want to see you again. <laughs> and they love it. And, and um, you know, it drives a lot of confidence, especially in an industry that is dominated by large Chinese companies that like don't even answer you, yeah. right? For them to build a relationship with me, the owner of the business, I promise you it's happened at least a dozen times. They had a problem. They were mad. I've had people threaten to knock down my door and then turn around and buy a thousand dollars worth of equipment from me. No way. Right? And, and so- just inbound on customer service has been, you know, another very lucrative channel. And, um, you know, this, this college guy I hired just like told him to hit his targets of like selling at least, you know, 30 K a month. And, and he just, when you give someone a target like that and they're just hungry, they just like go for it. Um, but, but a lot of that still is inbound and, and, you know, the outbound again has just been like highly targeted through niches. Yeah. Your customer service guy is just like a college kid. Yeah. How did you find him? How did you convince him? In the community. Um, like didn't the, need to convince him. Everybody knows who we are in the community and, um, you know, w- eager to to help us out. I saw a tweet recently. And it, it definitely like, I've been thinking about it a lot. It was something along the lines of like, there's an insane amount of alpha and just finding every 20 year old tucked into a corner somewhere that's like grinding on a bunch of random different, like a bunch of like different things and just like giving them money and resources to work on those things. And especially in SF, there are like a million and one cases of like kid drops out of college, kid goes to college, finds someone at college really hungry, like kind of wants to be like the next big thing, but doesn't really have like an outlet. He doesn't have his own startup. She doesn't have her own startup. And there's just huge amounts of value in just finding those people and figuring out how to work with them. But something that people actually run into a lot, and I've started noticing this with my friends is like, once you have that like raw talent on your team, 
it's not natural to like know how to manage someone like that or turn them into like, like a cannon that you can just kind of like point at anything. How did you go about, like, was this someone who had done customer service before? Yeah. I mean, they're a very personable person and you're asking me like, how did I do this? I, I still haven't done this, right? I'm, I'm still, you know, figuring out how to be a leader for my peers. I mean, I'm like the second youngest person in the company. It's so funny how much right? that Most happens. of the people I work with are older than me. Um, and there's no good answer. It takes, it, it takes at least a year to develop a relationship with somebody where you guys just understand each other, especially when they're older than you. There's, there's really no good answer. Um, you know, maybe if, if you have a track record and, you know, you have a large company and like young people are just eager to work and, and you have those structures in place. But when the company's really small, um, it really is about personal relationship with them and, and trusting each other and wanting to build each other up, right? That's the most important thing. For sure. One of the things we had talked, we had also talked about kind of off air was you've worked with some very interesting people before you went and started your own company. Mm -hmm. I guess first you want to like talk about who some of those people were. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll, I'll just give a little background. So, you know, I started doing um, startups and most of my work was in design and I was working with friends and then I just got really into 3D printing. Um, and, and when I was younger, one of the products that just sparked my imagination was Google Glass. Um, and I actually had the opportunity really? to like win a Google Glass. Uh, and yeah, so I invented a wearable that you could stick onto any pair of glasses and have Google Glass be a part of it. And it was using a voice assistant. This was back in 2017. So when Tab came out, I like hit him up. I'm like, yo, Avi, like I have worked very similarly on this, but like a lifetime ago, right? And that sparked some awesome conversations because I worked on this like right when Siri came out. Oh. Um, and, and we got, you know, we launched it on Kickstarter and that was kind of like my claim to fame in high school was like, I, you know, I did a Kickstarter. So when I came to Seattle, uh, which is where I went to school and Seattle's like an incredible tech hub, somebody was like, oh, hey, did you know, like the creator of Google Glass uh, is part of the UW, you know, faculty. Um, so I reached out, cold emailed him and he got back to me the next day and was like, hey, you know, you should come in and present your product to my team at Amazon. Um, I jumped out of my bed. Like this was a dream come true, right? Like this product started my career more or less. Um, so I came out, I met him, I presented to the team and he offered me a job. So I got to work with him and a small group of like, thought leaders at Amazon. And the whole thing was, if you build something good, you can pitch Jeff Bezos. Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, for a 18 year old kid, so hungry and eager, I was just like doing everything I could to get to that meeting. Um, and I wasn't able to get to that meeting, but, but that's okay. Um, I got torn up and you've heard a lot about Amazon's culture, about writing. And, you know, a lot of it comes down to clarity of thought of your ideas. Um, what is it about Amazon's culture about writing? They just force you to be more clear in your ideas than in a presentation. I've, I have stories by the way of like, cause I met some of these, you know, old heads from Amazon, uh, who tried to give Jeff presentations and he's like, you know, get out of here. If you ever give me a presentation again, you're fired. What was wrong with it? So the word that was used is presentations can be very hand wavy, right? And, and in Silicon Valley, you know, you know, I'm building the product, of, right? <laughs> it's always, it's the hand motions. It's the same three yeah, hand motions. Right, yeah. right. And, and all you have to do is put a slide that says like the future. Yeah. Oh yeah. Right. Whatever. Damn, One billion. Right. We just saw it with rabbit. Right. And like a lot of people thought that presentation was great, but like Jeff Bezos probably hate that presentation, right? <laughs> he would rather have like a one pager very clearly explaining the idea. Now the key difference is why should Amazon do it? And that's where everything breaks apart because 
when you have a large company and you have a reputation, the the way that you calculate shipping is entirely different because you you could actually damage your reputation by shipping things that are bad. Whereas like when you're a startup, when you don't have a, a fail reputation, fast. fail fast, right? So that was the big difference. And that's why I didn't want to keep working there ultimately because I didn't really feel like, uh, I didn't feel that it was, you know, the best products and the best shippers win. It was more about perception and politics. And that is why you do see a lot of products both out of like Amazon and Google that just don't go the distance. And yeah. that's okay, right? Because they're fostering bodies of research and a lot of it becomes research. There's no room for like that level of research or, or you know, long-term development cycles or, you know, bring in the executives when you haven't even launched a project, right? Um, but it was great. It was one of the most, you know, fundamental experiences. And again, it was my dream job. I was very lucky to have gotten my dream job at 18 um, because it didn't ever leave me one, you know, wondering, oh, what if I didn't do startups and just went and, and worked at a big company doing new product? That's so interesting. Did you meet anyone there that you ended up working with later? No, not particularly. I, not a lot of those folks actually are doing startups. Um, and, and that's partially just because Seattle is not a very startup-y and it is, right? You have Microsoft and Amazon, sure. but, but they just suck up all the really good talent. Um, that makes sense. I could see that. In the early days of, of, of building out the team, what were you looking for? Uh, it was very organic. Um, it was all the people in the community. And, and it's because, you know, um, uh, it, it's one of these things like, oh, if you found this community, then like, we must be like-minded. So if you know, you know, kind of. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. Um, and it was people who I had worked with uh, who were eager to help me for free that once I was able to get, you know, a little bit of money in the door, they're the first people I hired. And those were the people who welcomed me into their house and let me do construction in their living room. Yeah, that's awesome. And take over their garage, you know. That's awesome. When you keep talking, like you kept mentioning like the amount of power and the amount of energy that you yeah. use. You know, when we were talking before, you were telling me about how your dad comes up to you because you have this insane power bill or this insane energy bill. One of the things I talked about a few days ago with Sharif was people are starting to say, you know, one of the biggest problems AI is going to run into is actually just going to be the strain that it's going to, you know, bring to like the power grid. It's just a lot of energy that like it starts to suck up. How do you see that? Like, how, do you think that's actually a real problem? Like, how do you see that being solved in the future? Yeah. I mean, energy generation is um, ultimately our only limit and physics, right? Physics and power generation are really our only limit. Um, you can continue to make computers more efficient. And the first direction I went was to go for hard drives specifically because they're low power. Um, but as I've gotten more and more into the ecosystem where there are these large ASIC miners, right? Bitcoin miners who are just sucking down all this energy. Uh, it, it does become more and more important to find where these sources of energy are cheap and, and you know, how you can state claim on it, right? And, and uh, um, that's something that I've been focusing on personally because even though our end consumer has a low power device, in order to make those devices, we need a lot of power. Uh, and, and for me, getting ahead of that now instead of hitting that bottleneck down the road is, is very important. How do, you even, like, how do you even focus on something like that when you're relatively still such a young company? You meet the right people. Um, and you offer value, right? So, so in my particular case, I've brushed across many people who have, you know, large ASIC mining facilities uh, and they're asking me, hey, you seem like somebody who knows how to get more per watt, right? A, a hard drive produces much more value per watt than an ASIC miner, even a GPU, because it's so low power. When you look at like the dollar value that you get out per watt, it's higher. Now, 
The difference is the capital you have to put up might be a lot higher. And so for people that calculus doesn't make sense. But you know, I've met folks who have, you know, dozens or hundred megawatts of energy. They're trying to figure out what is the most valuable thing I can put between me and my energy uh, to get the most dollar per watt. Um, and and you know, some proponents could say, well, that's bad because we shouldn't actually be sucking up a lot of energy. But I disagree. I think the more value we get out of our natural resources is a net benefit to society because the power is not going anywhere. And coal is not a better way of getting energy than clean energy for a variety of reasons. And people understand it. The only barrier to transition uh, to newer forms of energy is, is these upfront costs and justifying those upfront costs. And it almost works better, right? If you can justify the upfront cost because you're going to put it into something, you're going to put a box in the middle, whether that's a GPU, a hard drive, an ASIC, any computer is going to get more value than say land or rent or even, you know, lights, right? Like lights don't produce any money, but they suck a ton of energy. So if you have something in every home, in every car that can turn that energy directly back into money, you now actually have a lot more incentive to go to cleaner, you know, maybe more expensive energy uh, sources in the short term. And that's a lot of what people would argue Bitcoin is really good at, is actually finding better sources of energy. Um, and, there, you know, there's, there's arguments and debates to be had on either side, but I actually generally agree that beyond the currency, what Bitcoin has been able to do by balancing energy and creating these pieces of hardware that almost act as like batteries or, or like financial incentives to get better forms of energy is actually a very interesting use case for uh, d distributed, you know, cryptocurrency networks. I feel like that's, you know, an argument or an angle about Bitcoin that I actually haven't heard before that much. Well, here's a specific example. So um, Texas, if you remember a couple of years ago, had like a big power outage. Remember this? I we were watching a video last night on YouTube about like, you know, the danger of an EMP attack and how society would, would kind of react to it. And they brought up that. Yeah. So that did not happen because Texas doesn't have enough energy. Texas has more energy and raw materials, you know, than, than I think the United States needs for a hundred years. Really? really? The U.S. alone has so, I mean, in South America, there are, all, there are volcanoes that could power <laughs> the world for the, right? The question is, is there an incentive to tap that energy? And so in Texas, they have all these wells, but let's say during the winter, they can make a killing, but during the summer, they're making zero. So what do they do? They have to shut down the well. And then when the winter comes around, it's not enough for them to start the well back up. So during the summer, the best thing they could do is mine Bitcoin because it's better than shutting down the well. Even if they're not making that much money off of that equipment, it's better than shutting down the well. And so acting as a load balancer and a battery can work beyond just power generation for people's homes. It can work well even in data centers when, you know, there's a hype cycle for AI, but maybe it, it tapers off. And I don't know if that's going to happen at all in the next several years, but uh, it could be a really good balancing act with crypto and AI. So do you see a world where the consumer electronics we have in our houses will be able to pay for the cost of our energy? That's very much the the vision of Evergreen. And maybe it's not necessarily energy, but um, you know, a, a television is a really good example. Like a television mostly just sits and does nothing in your house most of the time, right? Your laptop like sits in your backpack and does nothing. Your car sits in your garage and does nothing. True. So this idea of just like a well, it's sitting there doing nothing. Let's find something that is better than nothing 
right? That is kind of the fundamental idea behind Evergreen is that we wanna take all these consumer electronics that sit there and do nothing and find ways for them to be revenue generating assets. And maybe it's not passive income per se, because realistically, you know, someone might not get that excited about $20 a month. But if I told you that you could buy a TV and just that TV sitting there is going to pay for your Netflix <laughs> and we could actually create that incentive structure where the TV, you know, creates some sort of value that goes back to the companies that are providing this media. We have no now, we're now living in a world with way less waste than before, right? We're living in a world where actually you don't want to throw your TV out after a year, right? Uh, and, and, Adding value like that is, is something that's uniquely unlocked by distributed networks and kind of this new world that we're living in where everything is networked. Uh, and, and again, Evergreen is kind of building on top of these building blocks of both easy to access hardware. It's very easy now um, for, you know, newer, for companies that have figured it out to, to create hardware um, and networks that actually incentivize uh, hardware all the time. So if I want to now get into, you know, mining, mm -hmm. There's a lot of technology we have here at Founders Inc. There's a lot of stuff we have kind of like, or a lot of space we have kind of even in like, you know, other offices that our friends own or, or, or even just like the, our, the apartments that our friends like kind of live in. How, what is like the roadmap for me to get into it? Well, if you're just trying to get into mining period and you don't have a lot of energy, in my opinion, hard drives are the best way to do it. Um, and, and, you know, we could go down a whole rabbit hole about mining versus D-PIN is a very popular topic what is right now. D-PIN is uh, decentralized physical infrastructure networks. And what's the argument between them? So there's two clear distinctions. So um, the first is a marketplace. D-PIN is generally referred to as a, as a marketplace, meaning I have some idle resource and I'm using cryptocurrency or adjacent networks to allow people to access those resources. That's not the same as Bitcoin mining or, or Chia farming. Um, Bitcoin mining, it's not an idle resource. You're, you're using that resource to actually secure a network and build blocks. And again, without getting too deep into like the minutia, you, you can think of it as like Bitcoin is like specifically wasteful. Like you are using all of the Bitcoin's computer to do something that is generally not useful beyond securing Bitcoin and like preventing bad actors from uh, using Bitcoin. But in D-PIN networks, like an example is like Akash or RenderCoin, you're actually using idle compute to do something useful um, and proving that you did that. And that's actually, you know, one of the reasons why I'm, I wouldn't even call it skeptical, but just like I'm, I'm hesitant is that you can actually, you can do all this with US dollars, right? You, you can pay people to use their idle compute in US dollars. There's like actually no real need for, for crypto to be involved per se. There are interesting applications, but in Bitcoin, like it is fundamentally crypto and hashing and, you know, SHA-256, that is, that is the innovation. Um, and so, you know, back to kind of the point, right? If you're doing kind of this pure proof of work mining or proof of space mining, um, you know, one of my devices, you can plug it in. It only takes as much of a light bulb and you can earn anywhere from, you know, a tiny amount, 10 bucks a month to, you know, a thousand bucks a month on, you know, something that fits on your bookshelf. How do I make a thousand bucks a month off of this? You buy, you know, whatever, 60 of the miners and 60 of the miners. And yeah. so what does that come up to as like an upfront cost? Uh, it's probably like $15,000. And it would pay itself off in a year and, and, no. and some change. No, 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 no. I mean, it's we're in a we're in a you know a bear market. So so in the best of markets, you're hoping for something like six to twelve months ROI. In the worst of markets, like Bitcoin ROI can be never because your cost of energy is higher than what you're earning in Bitcoin. And if your mm. cost of energy is higher than what you're earning in Bitcoin, you shut it off. Because why would you be spending money to 
earn Bitcoin when you could just go buy Bitcoin. Right. So one of the beauties of, of hard drive mining is even in the worst markets, when it's a six or seven year payoff, you're not losing money, right? You're not better off shutting it off because then you would actually be losing money. Then your asset that you bought would not be generating revenue. Um, in six or seven years, uh, in crypto miners is for most, you know, crypto mining people is too long, but like for most revenue generating assets, six or seven years is actually fine. Have major hedge funds started to break into this then? Yeah. Uh, so at the highest level, like BlackRock has owned, uh, has taken stake in, in, in uh, Bitcoin mining operations. Um, uh, notably like ExxonMobil, who's a large energy producer is, is doing Bitcoin mining, right? Because, because again, like they have all this extra energy, like do they either just not use it or do they put it into something that can generate revenue? And what does it look like for these companies to do it at such a high level? Are um, they just setting up entire farms? Yeah, the margins are very thin, um, but, but they're profitable. And this is why it has gotten so hard for the average person to mine Bitcoin. Because when you have somebody who can do it at a much lower margin, they're going to price you out. It's like a, it's a perfect market, right? So if there's, you know, 10,000 miners and 9,000 of them are perfectly fine, only making a penny a day, but you need to make a dollar a day, you just can't do it. Um, so, you know, it, it's, it, it's, uh, yeah, again, it's a perfect market and it, it is, a, it's a beautiful system in a lot of ways, but there's a lot of flaws, right? What started as this idea of, again, you know, use your, your computer, your laptop that's sitting around to, to earn some you know, passive income and, and contribute to this distributed network has not really panned out that way specifically for Bitcoin because it has become a game of large energy providers who can acquire the energy for the cheapest. Um, not a bad thing per se. Uh, it's just for me, I'm a technologist who likes to make technology accessible to a lot of people. Uh, and, and I just, as I was doing GPU mining and as I was doing crypto, uh, ASIC mining, it just didn't, was not apparent to me that this would be like a available technology for people. Um, but but hard drives and, and solid state drives, on the other hand, you have a solid state drive, you know, you have multiple. You have one sitting in your computer, you have one sitting in your phone. And for the most of, of that solid state drive's life, it's actually empty, right? It's sitting there doing nothing, just like a well that's sitting there doing nothing. So, so you know, what what is maybe the next step for Evergreen uh, as, as kind of these networks get more acceptances, ideally we're shipping consumer devices that just have this technology built in and it's revenue generating. And as you fill it, maybe you get a little bit less revenue off of it, but at least it's not sitting there empty for the majority of its life. That makes sense. That yeah. makes sense. And so when you're thinking, and this is also a question I, I kind of use to, to wrap up the podcast, when you're thinking about Evergreen for the next year or even the next five years, what would you have to accomplish for you to come back and do this podcast again then and consider it a success? Well, I, I think it's already, you know, pretty successful just because I've gotten to serve so many people, but a lot of people are, um, uh, you know, looking to pay off the device. So if I came back in a year and the devices were, you know, closer to being paid off, I'd be pretty happy. Um, in five years though, to be honest with you, and this is all of crypto, a lot of it is speculation right now. And that's fine, right? Speculation is, uh, you know, making money is, is, is commerce, right? People generally have kind of these fixed principles of like, I want to save time or I want to save money or I want to make money. And, and Evergreen in its current state very much does those things. That being said, I'd like us to get to a point where people are not buying these devices solely because they think they're going to generate revenue. I'd like to get closer to this model of like, I buy this TV because it pays for my Netflix, right? right. I buy this device because on my laptop from Apple, I have to pay for all these services, but on my laptop from Evergreen, all my services are paid for. 
Interesting. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of the, the, the vision among, among other things. I mean, I think generally like owning revenue generating assets is really interesting. Um, like GPUs, we're expanding into GPUs and allowing people to do, uh, you know, own, own a GPU so they can participate in AI. Um, but, but that doesn't even need to be tied to crypto. That's just like, you know, helping people own assets and maintain them and earn revenue on them. Um, but, but yeah, that, that core vision is around disrupting consumer electronics as a whole uh, to, to leverage the, the waste that they generally have throughout their, their product life cycle. I feel like the more we do this podcast, the more I get surprised by like different angles for long-term visions that I would just, I wouldn't have seen. I guess it's also because I have a surface level understanding of a lot of the companies we talk to. It's a it's challenge. So much for them to branch out. It's it's a challenge. Um, and I think it the more you're working on like foundational and fundamental technologies, the more options you have. Um, and we can always reference these large companies, but like Amazon's maybe the perfect example. If you look at them and say, you know, you're a bookstore, Jeff, right? Like, how many books do you want to sell this year? And he's like, Well, look, I I want to sell more books this year, but that's not what Amazon is, right? And that's a that's a struggle uh for for every founder and especially founders who are doing kind of these foundational you know, fundamental paradigm shift companies because they have to get it off the ground in a way that makes sense to people in the market today, but create the ability for them to go to point A to B to Z uh, and and have these kind of compounding things as they go. And that's very challenging. It requires a lot of juggling, um, but it's a common pattern in, in kind of all these foundational companies that they might look very different than where they end up. 